Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Would you pray with me now? God, as we come into your presence today, we confess that we come with agendas. And as we come before you, we come with distractions. So God, we're praying today, asking that you would clear our minds and that you would own our hearts. God, would you make the room where you can speak today? In Jesus' name, amen. What are you going to do when you retire? Some of you may say, oh, I am already retired. But as we think about retirement, frequently we think about what we're going to stop. We're going to stop work. And we think about what we're going to start. We're going to start playing. Now, some of us think, I can't wait till I'm retired. I'll have opportunity to spend time lingering over my coffee and my devotional in the morning. And some of us are thinking pickleball. I can't wait to play more pickleball. And we think about how we can pursue taking care of ourselves and following our own agenda. Because sometimes when we think about retiring, we think about stopping work and starting to play. Former President Jimmy Carter actually gives us a really good example of what retirement can mean to us. Jimmy Carter was president of the United States from 1977 until he retired from political life in 1981. But in retirement from political life, former President Carter has really demonstrated the, the, the gold standard in what former presidents can do. He started the Carter Center at Emory University in Atlanta, and they have advocated for peace and facilitated peace in places around the world. President Carter has written 32 books, and he's been an active advocate for and participant in Habitat for Humanity and helped to provide affordable, decent housing for people who would have had none. And all through it, he's taught Sunday school at his home church in Plains, Georgia, Former President Carter is 99 years old, and he is in hospice care now. But by virtue of how he has lived his retirement, he's shown us what retirement can look like, that it can be filled with purpose. But can we, as Christians, retire? Now, I don't mean to ask, can we retire from work? Because the answer to that is patently Yes, we can retire from work. But can we, as Christians, retire from God? Can we retire from ministry, from being and making disciples? Can we retire from walking with God and, and taking next steps with God? Because sometimes we get to a point in life where we think, it's time for me to retire, 
from walking with God. I have done my thing. I've put my time in. And so I'm ready to retire. Can we retire from God? No. We can't retire from ministry, from being and making disciples, from walking with God and from taking next steps. Can we then take a break? Now, I'm not talking about taking a break from work or engaging in a regular rhythm of Sabbath weekly in our lives or taking a vacation. I'm not talking about that. But again, can we take a break from ministry, from being and making disciples, from walking with God, from taking next steps in our faith with God? And the truth of the matter is, sometimes we want to. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we get discouraged. But can we take a break? The answer is no. We can't take a break from God, from ministry, from being and making disciples, from walking with God and from taking next steps. Can we stall? If you would visualize the Christian life as having an engine in it, can we be in gear, in drive, and suddenly shift our spiritual lives into neutral? And immediately on hearing the question, you know the answer is no, we shouldn't. We should not stall out in our Christian lives and start coasting until we come to a stop. But at the same time, you know people who have stalled out in their Christian lives. You may be a person who stalled out and stopped moving forward in your Christian life today. Abraham shows us that there is a better way. Abraham lived for 175 years, and along the course of his life, Abraham made plenty of mistakes, but Abraham shows us that there is no point in life at which we retire or, or take a break or stall out in our walk with God. Abraham shows us that we walk with God for a lifetime. Abraham blazes a trail in front of us and shows us how to walk with God all of our lives. And so as we dig into the life of Abraham today, we come away with a powerful model. And the first thing that we learn about Abraham today is actually that Sarah, his wife, Sarah died and Abraham kept walking with God. Sarah died when she was 127 years old. She was 90 years old when she gave birth to Isaac. So she lived another 37 years after Isaac was born. Isaac was 37 years old when Sarah died. And Abraham was 137 years old when Sarah died. And Abraham took a moment to grieve and to mourn. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about what that was like. It simply says that he went into the place where she had died, and he mourned, and he wept. But the Bible also makes it clear that Abraham had to get up after mourning because there was work to do. Abraham needed a place to bury Sarah. And so Abraham appeared before the leaders in his region, the Hittite princes of that part of Canaan. He likely went to them at the gates of a nearby city. The Hittite princes assembled together to talk, and Abraham appeared in their midst, and he said, I am not one of you. I'm not from here, and I do not own land here, but I need a place 
to bury my dead. And the Hittite princess responded, you weren't born here. You may not be a Hittite, but you are a prince. You are one of us. And they wanted to do business with Abraham. So Abraham began bargaining with them. The Hittite rulers of the region offered Abraham one of their own tombs. They said, you can take any one of our tombs and bury Sarah, your beloved wife, in that place. But Abraham did not want a handout, nor was he looking for a place to bury one person, but for him to be able to bury Sarah and himself and generations of his family that he in faith already could see would be coming. And so he said, I want to own a place for myself and for my family. And they said, who do you want it from? And, and he identified a cave, the cave of Machpelah that belonged to the Hittite prince Ephron. And Ephron said back to him, well, you can't buy the cave without buying the field that is around it as well. And the bargaining was then on. Abraham agreed to buy the cave and the field surrounding it. And the prince Ephron said, you don't need to buy it. This is nothing between us. It's worth 400 shekels. That's 100 pounds of silver. It's worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? That is a vast sum of money. But Abraham accepted the price that was set. You see, he was asking not just for a patch of ground, but he was asking for a place as a prince to bury his family for generations. No, 400 shekels of silver was nothing. He agreed to the price. And Abraham now owned the first piece of the land of Canaan. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would own the entire land of Canaan. And Abraham came to the land of Canaan, but he never until this point owned any piece of land in Canaan itself. And here Abraham has bought this first piece of land, the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, east of the Oaks of Mamre, and what would have become later the city, the town of Hebron. Now Abraham his descendants after him, owned a spot in the promised land, their first piece of dirt in the promised land. Sarah died, and Abraham kept walking with God. But as we go on, we realize that Abraham took one next step after another with God right up until his own death. After Sarah died, Abraham wanted to secure, to, to find a suitable wife for Isaac, his son. Abraham didn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman because he knew that if Isaac married a Canaanite woman, eventually Isaac and his descendants would become just other Canaanites themselves. Abraham concluded that what Isaac needed to do was marry someone from his own family, from a group of people who had at least begun to declare their loyalty to the Lord. And so Abraham appointed his chief servant, his steward, and charged him with going back to Mesopotamia, where Abraham was from, to the city where his brother Nahor had settled. Abraham sent the steward away with camels and with servants and with gifts for the family. 
And the steward and the camels and the servants came to the city where Nahor lived. And the steward was looking for a suitable bride for Isaac, and he found Rebekah. Abraham's brother, Nahor's granddaughter, Rebekah. And Rebekah was willing to come to Canaan and marry Isaac. The steward and the family negotiated terms very quickly, and it was decided, and Rebekah set out with the steward to return to Canaan. And when she reached where Isaac was staying, Isaac was outside, and she saw Isaac. And Isaac saw her, and love came quickly to the two of them, and they married quickly. And Abraham could know that his family was becoming more secure. Isaac, his son, had a suitable wife. But Abraham had to next secure Isaac's future. You see, Isaac was Abraham's son by Sarah, his beloved wife. Abraham had another son, Ishmael by Hagar, who had been Sarah's maid, whom Sarah gave to Abraham to be a wife. And later, likely after Sarah died, Abraham married again, a woman named Keturah, and she had six sons for Abraham. Among the sons of Abraham are the princes who became the head of many nations around Israel, and that's Part of how God fulfilled the promise that he would make Abraham the father of many nations. But here were all of these other sons, potential rivals to Isaac. And while Abraham clearly loved them, Isaac's future was the one that needed to be secured. And so Abraham gave his sons gifts and sent them off to the east so that they would not be around. And rivals to Isaac, Abraham secured Isaac's future. And then Abraham got to see generations of his family being born. Isaac and Rebekah were together for 20 years before they had children. Isaac and Rebekah were likely 60 years old when they had children, twins, Esau and Jacob. And that made Abraham 160 years old when Esau and Jacob were born, but he lived for 15 years after that. The Bible never tells us if he got to meet Esau and Jacob, but certainly Abraham knew that Esau and Jacob had been born and that his family was turning into generations. And then having found a suitable wife for Isaac, having secured Isaac's future, having seen generations of his family be born, the Bible tells us that Abraham died at 175 years old. Genesis chapter 25, verses 7 through 11. Let me remind you of them again. They read, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. So Abraham was buried in the same cave, the cave of Machpelah, with his beloved wife, Sarah. 
And the interesting thing is that we know with relative certainty where the cave of Machpelah is to this day. Generations of Abraham's descendants were buried there. Isaac and Rebekah were buried there. And tradition held on to and knew the site of this cave. And Herod the Great, who put the walls around and reconstructed the temple in Jerusalem, also constructed a wall around the cave of Machpelah or the cave of the patriarchs in what has become the city of Hebron in the occupied West Bank. Now, today in the West Bank, those structures have been torn down and rebuilt multiple times, and the cave of the patriarchs is in joint custody between Jewish and Muslim people, and it is used jointly by Muslim and Jewish people, but we know to this day the site where Abraham was almost certainly buried. When he was buried, his two sons were there. Isaac and Ishmael were both there when Abraham was buried. The scripture tells us that there was tension in the family between Isaac and Ishmael, but the two of them were able to put that tension aside for a time to come to bury and to honor their father. Now, in all of these things that Abraham did, what we discover is Abraham is walking with God and continuing to take next steps with God right up until the end of his life in what Abraham did, we learn an important principle for ourselves, and that is that there is no place for quitting in our relationship with God. I want you to let that sink in for just a moment today. There is no place for quitting in our relationship with God. You see, sometimes as we think about a relationship with God and about what God has done in the world, we get the impression that there is a stopping point. And in order to understand where we think that stopping point is, I need to back up and kind of tell you God's story from creation to conclusion all over again, because this helps us to see where we think the stopping point is. The the story of God's from creation to conclusion begins with creation. God made the world and us and everything in the world, and he did so to have a relationship with us. That's chapter one. Chapter two is brokenness, symbolized by a line that says, we sinned, we disobeyed God, we rebelled against God, and when we did, we broke our relationship with him, and we broke ourselves, and we broke the world, and we try to do everything we can to repair the damage that we've done and to find our way back to connecting with God, but we can't do it on our own. That's chapter two, brokenness. Chapter three, Jesus begins with this, but God, we couldn't do it, but God sent Jesus into the world, the perfect son of God, to live a perfect life and to die a death on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sin and our disobedience. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death and evil. And now because Jesus died and rose again, we have offered to us forgiveness. We can be adopted as sons and daughters of God. We can be given new life and the promise of eternal life. All we have to do is say yes to Jesus. And in our minds, sometimes that becomes the end point. We say yes to Jesus and think that God's story is done. 
That God's activity in our lives is done. We've checked that box. It's done. We're at the end, we think. But this is not the end. That's chapter three. There is a chapter four, the church. And in chapter four, the church, God sends his Holy Spirit into the world to sanctify us. God puts his Holy Spirit inside of us. And when God the Holy Spirit comes into us, God the Holy Spirit begins to change us from the inside out. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter three, where he writes, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so now Paul is telling us what happens, and we see it in the arrows that symbolize the church in that diagram. God sends his Holy Spirit into the world, into us. God, the Holy Spirit, transforms us from the broken beings that we are. He begins shaping the image of Christ in us. That's the down arrow. And in response, we live lives of holiness for God. Chapter 4 is a chapter where we are being sanctified. But in chapter 4 as well, in the chapter about the church, God is sending his Holy Spirit into the world to make us ambassadors. God, the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives and gives us the gifts that we need for doing ministry, for proclaiming good news, for showing the love of God around the world. God, the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives and commissions us as ambassadors representing the values, the beliefs, and the ways of the kingdom of God. It's a message of reconciliation that's being given to us. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so we look at these arrows again, and we see God is sending his Holy Spirit into the world, into us. He commissions us as ambassadors. He gives us the gifts that we need, and we go. We go to our neighbors. We go to the nations. And we invite them to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they respond and become disciples of Jesus themselves. God has made us his ambassadors. This is the essence of chapter four, the church. God is sanctifying us and sending us as his ambassadors. And then chapter five is Jesus' return. We symbolize it with a crown because Jesus who returns comes to reign as king. And Jesus says in the New Testament, I am gonna go away, I am going, and when I go, I am going to prepare a place for you. And he says, and and when that place is prepared, I'm going to come again, and I'm going to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus promises to return for us. And now you may ask the question, when? When is Jesus going to return? And write this down. When he's ready. Jesus returns when he is ready and when preparations are complete and the time is right. But that means right now we're not at an end. 
Right now, God's plan is unfolding all around us in our lives and in history. We exist in this era waiting for Jesus to return, waiting expectantly for Jesus to return, looking forward to Jesus' return. But while we are waiting, there is work to be done. While we are waiting, we are working. While we are waiting, God is working. God is working and building his kingdom and sending his spirit into the world and calling people to himself. This is not a time for us to retire. This is not a time for us to take a break. This is not a time for us to stall out. This is a time for us too, as disciples of Jesus, to work. During this season, chapter four, the church that we're living in, we have the work of allowing God to sanctify us. During the season that we live in, chapter four, the church waiting for the return of Jesus, we are on mission to the neighbors and to the nations to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and call people to faith. While we wait, we work. This is no time to retire. No time to take a break, no time to stall out. God has work for you and me to do. That's where we live right now, God's plan unfolding all around us. So this calls us to do something. Let's keep taking next steps with God as we walk with him. You see, to be a healthy Christian is something far more than just hitting like on social media. A phenomenon has arisen in our day called a Facebook Christian, and you've probably run into a few Facebook Christians. They, they make big, bold posts on social media. And then they try to shame you. If you don't like my post and repost my post, if you don't make me a social media phenom, then there's something wrong with your faith. But at the same time, a Facebook Christian makes these blatant claims to faith on social media, but frequently their real-life lives don't match what they say on social media. There's no correlation between their real-life lives and their social media posts. There actually can be contradiction between their behavior, their attitude, and their bold posts on social media. You see, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a healthy Christian, involves more than liking things on social media, more than thinking things cognitively. It, it leads to changed behaviors and to changed lives. Healthy Christians engage with their faith in the real world. We've sought here at Valley to articulate what it looks like to engage with your faith in the real world. We've got something we call the engagement wheel, whereby we try to help you think through what engaging with your faith in the real world looks like. It's got four quadrants to it. Quadrant number one is the worship one. We worship God publicly and boldly 
And we worship God privately through our daily times with him where we give him honor. In the second quadrant, we connect. We get together with other disciples of Jesus in groups, and we encourage one another in following Jesus and being disciples. In quadrant three, serve. We use the gifts that God has given us in order to do ministry, to make and multiply disciples, to serve people, and to share good news about Jesus. And in quadrant four, share. We share boldly the good news about Jesus Christ with our neighbors and with the nations. And that's what it looks like to engage with our faith in the real world. That's what healthy Christians do. Healthy Christians also move. That's what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is reminding us of fundamentally. Let me remind you of it again. It says, therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, we, we have those who show us the way, a, a cloud of witnesses, like Abraham specifically, who blaze trails of showing us what it looks like to be healthy followers of God. We look to Jesus, who is the greatest trailblazer, the ultimate example. And as we look to that cloud of witnesses and to Jesus himself, there is a sense in which we are moving but before we get there, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, it's time to let go of all of the weights that are holding us back. What are the weights that are holding us back? It is that sense of tiredness, that sense of laziness, that sense of selfishness, that sense of greed and, and, and desiring to do my own thing. It, it is holding us back from moving forward with God. And it says not only that, but lay aside the sin. The sin is that which stops us from walking with God and moving forward. And then it gets to the verb, to the center, to the call. And it says, what is the call? Why do you listen to the examples of those who have gone before? Why do you look to Jesus? Why do you let go of the weight? Why do you lay aside the sin? Why? That you might run. And that you might run with endurance. That you might move in your Christian lives. Because healthy Christians move. But healthy Christians keep moving for a lifetime. God called Abraham to leave the land where he was dwelling and go to the land of Canaan. And Abraham set out walking with God. Abraham made mistakes along the way. But consistently, Abraham said yes to God. He walked he took one step after another with God, one next step after another with God, and he kept walking right until the end of his life. 175 years. 
And Abraham was blazing a trail for us, calling us to walk with God and to take one next step after another for a lifetime. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.